This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This morning, we are finishing our message series, Colossians, the Supremacy of Christ. And we have spent um, almost four months now walking through the book of Colossians and exploring what the Apostle Paul teaches us about how Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. About how he is completely unique in his authority, his power, his wisdom. There's no one like him, nothing next to him. Paul basically writes in Colossians to tell the church in Colossae and to tell us In every moment, in every situation, for every person, Jesus always has been and always will be enough. There is nothing left to him. And a couple weeks ago, I was reading through some commentaries uh, that covered the portion of the scriptures we're going to talk about today, Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. It's Paul's farewell greetings. Uh, Normally, when you do a preach through a book of the Bible, this is the part you skip because it just kind of sounds like an acceptance award speech, you know, thank you to my friends, my family, my mom, my third grade teacher, those types of things. There's not a whole lot in there, but as I was reading it, there are two names that come out. And Paul tells these two stories just very briefly, but there's a rich history behind each one of them. And as you explore that history, what it teaches us is about the supremacy of Christ over our failures. And so in one of these commentaries I was reading, the the guy who wrote it, he made a comment at the end, and, and he had just kind of explored some of these options, and it was really, really cool. And he kind of laid this challenge at the end of his book, and he said, for the good preacher... There is rich material in Colossians 4. And I thought, well, I'm not that, but I like what he says, so we're going to go ahead and try it anyway. So this morning, we're going to look at Colossians 4, 7 through 18, just pick out a couple verses there, primarily the story of Onesimus and the story of Mark, and we're going to see what they teach us about the supremacy of Christ over our failures. Now, what we all know is that failure is inevitable in life. Right? If you have lived any amount of time and you have any amount of self-awareness, you know you have failed repeatedly and you have sometimes failed spectacularly. I uh, remember when I was 15, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and in Kansas, back in the old days when I was 15, uh, on the day you turned 15, you were eligible to get your learner's permit. And so your learner's permit meant you could drive with mom and dad in the car. And in my group of friends and my family, it was a very big deal to get that permit on the day you turned 15. You didn't want to wait a single day. I had a sister who was 18 months older than me, so she had done it on her birthday. She had went and got that done. So February 11th, 1997, I go into the Department of Motor Vehicles. My dad got me up early in the morning to go take my test. Now, about two weeks prior to that, my mom had came home with what I thought was this worthless little book about the laws of driving in Kansas. And she tossed it at me and she said, son, you need to read this if you're going to take your test in a couple weeks. And I tossed it back at her and I said, mom, I'm an honor student and driving is easy. I don't need that. I'll be just fine. And she said, no, 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 no. You know how to drive in a pasture on grandpa's farm. You don't know how to drive on the street. I said, mom, I've looked around Topeka and I see the people who have, driver, have driver's license. I think I'll be fine. Like I'm, I'm smart enough to, to do this. And my older sister chimed in as she often did in my life to boss me around. And she said, no, I took it and you, you need to study for it. There's stuff you don't know. And I told her, Mindy, it's just one more time that I'm going to prove how much better I am than you. And you can talk to your counselor about it when you're an adult. You know, just kind of this. Yeah, I mean, we had a very loving, tender relationship. 
And so she told me that, and my dad just kind of stayed out of it. He was just like, what, you want to take it without studying? That's fine, whatever. So we go in that morning, and my dad says, all right, go in there, you take your test, and I'm going to go next door to the donut shop, and then you can drive to school when we're done. So I go in there just so confident, and I sit down to take it, and I realize pretty quickly, I don't know this stuff. But I, I still, it didn't, I mean, I had, I, do you remember being 15? Especially men, do you remember, like, even if you don't know it, you still know it. So even as I sat there staring at a test that I had no idea, I was like, whatever, I'll guess my way through it, and I'll still get it right. And so I guessed my way through it, and I go turn it in. You were allowed to miss four questions, and the lady graded it real quick, and she said, I'm sorry, you missed five, you failed, you can come back in a week. And I thought, oh, no. And my fear had nothing to do with failing the test. My fear had to do with my big mouth had dug such a big hole already. So I walked out. My dad tosses the keys to me, and he says, okay, let's go. And I have to toss them back. So I flunked. And he kind of stifled that chuckle, you know, that, that like, I, I mean, I, I've done it with my boys now and know I'll do it again, but just that look and, and I go to school and, and my buddies are there and they know it's my birthday and they know I was supposed to go and they're like, show us your permit. Cause that's the thing you do when you're 15. You're very proud of that. And I said, I failed. I didn't get it. So they made fun of me the whole day long, but by far the worst was when my mom came to pick me up from basketball practice that night. And as I walked out of the gym doors at the school, I could see her and I could see the look on her face. And it was, I mean, some of you moms, you know, or or if you had a relationship like I had with my mom, which was very good, but I was very ornery. And so there were just a lot of times she had that smug satisfaction of just, I was so right and I love you, son, but you're an idiot. And I walked across the parking lot and I got in the car and she's almost like giddy with laughter and says, so how'd your test go? (laughs) Like, I know you know how it went. Dad already told you. Let's just go home. And we walk in the front door. My stupid sister's sitting on the couch. She's got the same look my mom had. It's like genetics. They can make the same smug face. And she says, hey, how'd your test go, smarty? Like, shut up. She says, you know who passed it the first time? Me. My God, like, oh, whatever. And, and in the whole thing, just the most humiliating part was not that I failed. It was that all of these people knew it. And thinking about what we're talking about today, I thought of that one especially. I don't, I don't know why. Apparently, I need to go to counseling, I think, is the moral of that story. But, uh, you know, just you all, we all have these stories. And, and so I don't feel too bad about myself. How many of you, be honest enough, this is a safe space. No one's, I mean, we're going to laugh at you, but that's fine. But um, how many of you failed either your driving, the actual driving portion or the written portion of your driver's test? Okay, thank you. Very good. How many of you, like me, failed it because you refused to study at all for it? There you go. Good. It's nice to know. I'm always afraid things like that, that I'll just be on idiot island out by myself. And, uh, but it's good to know I have company in that this morning. But what I want you to think about this morning is, is three things. And we're going to talk about the supremacy of Christ over our failure. And what we're going to talk about is failure is unavoidable. Failure is miserable. But ultimately, because Jesus stands before all things, failure is fixable. So this first idea we know from our own experience, failure is unavoidable. It's going to happen. We're going to fail in a variety of ways. And Paul tells us two, or just mentions two names, and then it's up to us to learn the story behind them to understand his point about failure. The first person he talks about is Onesimus. 
Now, in verse 8, he says, I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. So remember, Paul writes the letter to the Colossians from prison. And the letter that follows Colossians is called Philemon. The letter of Philemon describes Onesimus as a runaway slave who's ran away from his master and somehow he's come in contact with Paul and he is now a follower of Christ. And now Paul is sending him back to Colossae, to his master, but he is sending him back not as a runaway slave, but he says he is one of you. He is a faithful and dear brother. And as we start to learn Onesimus' story, what we understand is that sometimes our failures are, are very, um, very damaging to us. For Onesimus, as a runaway slave, Rome was a dangerous place for him to be. They did not treat them kindly, and so he had this huge secret about his past that he was constantly trying to keep from everyone. If they found out who he really was, his life was in danger. And so he would have lived his entire life, though he was free, still in the, the shackles of fear about what if somebody finds out. For a runaway slave, life was always lived with one eye looking forward and one eye looking backward. It was this constant uncertainty of what happens if people find out who I really am. And for us in life, there are times when we fail in ways that we're able to move on from them, but they still hold on to us. And they still carry some of that same sense of shame and that same sense of, I hope no one finds out about this. And that same sense of, man, I, I just, I, I'm worried that someday somebody might know what I've done and no one will love me anymore. For Onesimus, his failure was serious, but it wasn't entirely his fault. His failure existed because slavery existed. And so we can't hold it against him that he fled that horrible institution, and yet still he carried this failure and the stigma that went with it. You know, for us, maybe what that looks like is, is when you see victims of abuse, oftentimes they will feel this way. They feel as if what has done, been done to them was somehow they were a, a, a participant in it. And so they carry this sense of shame and this sense of darkness and, and carry the sense of, man, if anybody ever knows what's actually been done to me, what would my life be like? If anyone ever found out exactly what I've done or what, what I participated in, what would they think of me? And the point that Paul pushes us towards by describing Onesimus as he is now one of you, He's a faithful and dear brother. And Philemon, he says, I send him back to you, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And Paul's making this point to us that no matter how serious, no matter how shameful, no matter how secret our failure, when we come to Christ, we are made one of the body of Christ. It doesn't separate us. It doesn't create different classes of Christians, but we are all one. And so for you this morning, for us, if there are areas of our lives where maybe you're a follower of Christ, but there's still this little area of darkness or this thing that happened in the past, and you think, I've never told anyone, I'm never going to tell anyone about that, my encouragement to you today is to understand that even in that dark space, Jesus brings redemption and hope and healing, that you 
cannot prevent his salvation from covering every part of your life. So he covers our secret failures. He covers the moments that we're ashamed of and don't want anyone else to know about, but he also covers our public failures. In verse 10, Paul continues to write, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then he has this little parenthetical statement. He says, you have received instructions about him, meaning Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, again, this is one of those deals we read through and don't think anything about. But if you go back to Acts chapter 15, you understand why this is a big deal. Mark was a former associate of Paul's, and in uh, Acts 15, it tells the story of Paul splitting up with his ministry partner Barnabas over Mark's behavior. Acts 15, verse 36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. When Paul mentions Mark to us, it's a reminder to us that even our public failures are not too much for Christ. Mark knew what he did. He knew his failing had affected his relationship with Paul and Paul's relationship with Barnabas. And I mean, you can almost picture that day as Paul and Barnabas argue, it's as if Mark's whole history gets laid out in front of them again. We don't know exactly why Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps he was homesick and just wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe there was a threat of persecution. Maybe he just felt like, I'm in over my head, I've got to get away. But for whatever reason, he abandoned Paul and Barnabas in the middle of a a critical ministry assignment, and he goes back home. And then Paul and Barnabas eventually make their way back to Jerusalem, and they're going to go on a trip again. And Barnabas, because he's Mark's cousin, Maybe he doesn't want to hear it from his aunt at Passover or something like that. But he says, hey, let's bring, let's bring Mark along with us. Paul says, absolutely not. The guy's unreliable. He abandoned us. I'm not traveling with him again. And it brings it to such a sharp point of disagreement that Paul and Barnabas, two holy, righteous men committed to the establishment of the church in places when Jesus is not known, they disagree so seriously over Mark's participation that they decide we can't work together anymore and they go their separate ways. But now when we get to Colossians, and Paul's writing the letter to the church in Colossae, he says, uh, Aristarchus sends his greetings and Mark also. And if Mark comes to you, remember, I have wrote to you about him, and you are to welcome him. It seems to give us this idea that Mark's reputation for failure had preceded him, that other churches knew what he had done, that other believers knew what a failure he was. And think of your own life, that the most painful failures are often the most public failures. The more people know about what we did wrong, the harder it is for us to continue in a relationship with those people. You know, public failure at its, at its best is embarrassing. And at its worst, it's humiliating and can even be debilitating. We just think, I can't do that anymore. But what we learn from Paul's mention of Mark is that public failures do not disqualify us from God's kingdom even when we mess up in ways that our whole family knows about. 
Even when you screw it up at school or in a meeting at work or in front of your neighbors, when you fail in front of friends or teammates or worse, you fail in front of your enemies in every moment, in every failure, nothing disqualifies you from God's call on your life. The biggest question we face when we fail publicly is, will we have the humility to receive God's forgiveness? Or will we instead be dominated by our embarrassment and our humiliation and run away? See, we know failure is not only unavoidable, but it's miserable. Nobody likes to fail. Even when you learn from it over the long term, I mean, most of us, if we're really honest, we understand we are who we are today, not just because of our successes, but also because of our failures. And often you have learned more from your failures about yourself and about God's grace than you have from your successes. And at the same time, if we're all really honest, failure is miserable. No parent wishes it on their child. Nobody wakes up on an average Tuesday morning and thinks, I can't wait to screw some stuff up today. It's not in us. We don't want to fail. We want to be successful. And the reason we do is because failure is miserable. It's painful. Over the, over the past couple of weeks, I've spent some time thinking about all of the ways that I've failed in my life. And uh, it, it took a while and it wasn't pleasant. And I, I could think back, and, and I'd encourage you to do this this week, not, not because we're trying to be like the, the most depressed, melancholy church in Tulsa. That's not the, that's not the goal. We exist to be miserable. That's, that's not it. But what I want you to do is think about it, and I can think about the ways I failed. I mean, it, you're, it's amazing once you start down this road, the things that come back to mind. I mean, I could remember things that I said in elementary school to kids or teachers or my parents. I could remember ways I behaved in junior high, and it's like, I don't know how I lived through that. Like, why somebody should have killed me just for my pure brattiness. Remember things that I did or said in high school or college. I thought of ways that I failed as a husband, as a father, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a son, as a brother, as a pastor, as a son-in-law, as a brother-in-law. Basically, every Every area of relationship that I have in life, I could think of examples of how I had failed spectacularly in some of those areas. And at first, it's, it's a pretty painful process to kind of begin to sort through that. But the reason you do it is not to feel horrible about yourself, but the reason you do it is to really consider the amazing nature of God's grace extended towards us. See, God's grace is beautiful and amazing, not just because he forgives you one time, but because he forgives you again and again and again and again. Sang that song earlier, even if I ran away, even if I turned my back on him, even if I did the worst thing in the world, what the gospel teaches us is that God continues to pursue us and continues to forgive us and continues to call out to us. And so we acknowledge that failure is unavoidable. We acknowledge that it's miserable, but at the same time, we understand it's fixable. And it's fixable for me, and it's fixable for those people that I'm worried about. It, it means that those friends, those family members who seem so far from the Lord, who seem to be joyfully living in their failure, that God's redemption still goes further than their sin. 
And, and I think for us to understand exactly how that works, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of Colossians. And Colossians 1.17 is Paul's thesis statement for his whole letter. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so when it comes to our failure, here's what this means. Jesus stands before every failure. Everything you've done in the past, everything you're doing right now, everything you might do in the future, he stands before it all. And his forgiveness does not depend on your circumstance. But it's free and it's complete and he offered it before you ever made a single move towards him. Paul tells us in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is before your sin, which means there is no way your sin can be too great that it comes back and gets under and behind the finished work of Christ. And if Jesus stands before my sin, it means there is no sin in the world that is beyond his redemption. So just, I mean, very practically speaking, Jesus stands before the divorce. Jesus stands before the sickness. Jesus stands before that day your child looked in your eyes and said, I hate you. Jesus stands before your greatest disappointments. He stands before your parents abandoned you. He stands before the day your spouse walked out on you. He stands before the day you took the walk of shame out of your company as you were fired for your own irresponsible behavior. He stands before the addiction. He stands before the depression. He stands before the bankruptcy. He stands before the sickness and before the disease. He stands before death itself. Because he stands before it, his forgiveness can never be rescinded. Even if I ran away, his love never fails. This is, this is what Paul tells us. But he says he's not just before all things, he's also in all things. So Jesus doesn't just forgive you from over here and say, now good luck with it. Try to work that out. But he stands before it and he comes down in it. Right down into the mess of our sin, into the mess of our world, into the, the sickness and the disease and the dirt and the grime. He comes right down into it. And in the middle of that, he holds all things together. In the middle of our sin, he holds our sin together. He holds our life together. He holds our families together. He holds our marriages together. He holds the brokenness of our lives together in him. Paul's statement, the whole reason he writes the letter to the Colossians was because there were people who felt like Jesus wasn't enough. 
they had to add some extra element of religion. There had to be more because there were people who felt like this salvation in Christ is just too easy. We must do more to make sure God approves of us. But again, Paul writes it to once and for all say, he's enough, there's nothing left to be done. And that same declaration goes out over each one of our hearts this morning. He's enough. Whatever your sin, whatever your shame, whatever your failure, whatever your embarrassment, he stands before it. Whatever your doubts or insecurities, he stands before it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.